Hello and welcome to the 10th edition of Spotlight on Stories, a Clintonville Spotlight and Worthington Spotlight podcast. With Spotlight on Stories, our aim is to tell the stories of people from Clintonville, Worthington, and Central Ohio at large. We are recording in the heart of Clintonville at Combined Spaces. For our 10th episode, I am excited to sit down with former Ohio State linebacker and co-founder of the Second and Seven Foundation, Ryan Miller. Ryan, thanks for being here. Seth, thanks for having me, man. It's a, it's, it's a pleasure. We go way back, so it's kind of fun to uh, kind of reconnect here. We do. We're going to go through your, your life story a little bit. But, uh, yeah, you uh, you set me up with actually my first employment out of college. I, I did some football games for Marty Bannister over in uh, Springfield, and you introduced us. So I really appreciated that at the time and certainly got, got us rolling. That's great. Well, it's fun to see you continue to have that passion in sports. And yeah. uh, I know that's something that you're really proud of. Oh, thanks so much. So second and seven, um, highlight that a little bit first. Uh, you you started this, and, and we'll go through that in a moment, but but it's it's really to tackle illiteracy in young people. Talk a little bit about quickly kind of what, what you do now with, with second and seven. So second and seven through the years, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary, believe it or not. Yeah. And, you know, through the years it started out small, and I tell people all the time, young kids that are interested in being philanthropic, that, you know, as long as your heart's in the right place and you have a small idea, you can make big things happen. And that's what Second and Seven is. Mm-hmm. That's the story of Second and Seven. It started out with a small seed we planted 25 years ago, and it's grown into just a forest of activity that that uh, we would have never imagined way back in 1999. Uh, we just literally wanted to go and read to children and give them a book to remind them of the visit and share our excitement of reading and hopefully – uh, get them encouraged about reading so that they can change their stars. That's that's where the you know impetus to this came to. And sure. uh, you know myself and Mike Vrabel and Luke Fickle, we were all at Ohio State, and you know uh, Larry Romanoff was one of the guys that was around the football program that would receive phone calls randomly from organizations that were interested in having football players come out and speak to the kids or be at a uh, Boy Scout graduation or things of that nature. And there was no real systematic approach to philanthropic giving or donating of your time. And uh, so then basically anybody that called up back then uh, would, would reach a secretary at Ohio State, mm-hmm. would funnel them over to the football office, and they would, they would find someone interested in helping out that particular activity. And when I was a young player at Ohio State, not seeing the field at that moment, uh, they would contact me to go to do different things, right? Yeah. And I would be the football player that came in and, and went to the D.A.R.E. promotions and the, the Boy Scout, like I said, graduations or the uh, kids after school program. Uh, and one day in particular, I was at a Right to Read Week. Okay. And we all have been around, sure. you know, the Right to Read Week. And it's Dr. Seuss's birthday and everyone's excited. And so I remember uh, about a week before uh, making the commitment, I had something else come up and I was like, oh, man, I don't really want to go read to those kids. I had a bad attitude, mm-hmm. like, a, like a normal 20-year-old yeah. punk kid at Ohio <laughs> State, right? And uh, But I, I always knew my parents told me, you know, you keep your commitments. If you've got something, you, got, you, you said you were going to go read to those kids, you better go read to the kids. And so uh, I remember driving over there with a bad attitude, meeting the principal, the principal giving me a book, you know, Dr. Seuss book to go read to the children. And I walk into the door and uh, the classroom door, and these kids come at me like I was a alien from outer space. They were so happy to see a Buckeye <laughs> football player yeah. hugging on you. And it really changed my perspective. And I remember feeling bad that I had those uh, those feelings of really not wanting to go there or my time was so important, right? And so I came back to the Woody Hayes facility thinking, man, I'm really blessed. I'm really lucky. I think I have a, a bigger sphere of influence than I originally thought. And so at that moment, I just fell in love with the uh, the idea of helping kids read. And so when I graduated, that's when we kind of had the idea that instead of going there and just reading a book that the principal gives you, why don't we try to raise some money mm-hmm. and actually buy books for kids? And so me, Mike, and Luke had a little football camp, raised enough money to buy second graders books at seven schools. And so that's how it started. Second that's graders awesome. at seven schools. We called it second and seven. And the rest is history. <laughs> that is really cool. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. We'll go back up through um, second and seven a little bit too as we get toward the end here. Now you grew up in Allen Park, Michigan. Uh, that stayed up north. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? And then we, I'd like to talk to you about how you ended up in Columbus. 
Yeah, so I, I grew up in Allen Park. Uh, it's a southwest Detroit suburb next to Dearborn, for those of you who are familiar with the uh, the Rust Belt and the Detroit area. Um, so it, it's a blue-collar town. Most of the people, most of the families work for the big three, particularly Ford. Mm-hmm. Ford employed the majority of my friends' families, um, whether their fathers worked on the line or their or their moms were some type of clerical, you know, office type of a job. But, uh, you know, nearly every single person in our community was touched by the auto industry. And uh, so that's the lunch pail type of industry. You roll up your sleeves, go to work. You know, you have a commitment, you do it, you try your best, you know, you're fanatical about the details i mean it's it's just that's the way you grew up in that manufacturing type of a of a model and so everyone around me that's just the way it was my mom was a stay-at-home mom my dad was uh, actually an insurance salesman that was going to law school when i was a little boy i can remember him going to law school i remember him failing the bar exam and being devastated yeah. and continuing to study uh, my mom and dad had us when they were pretty young too so you know looking back at it it's it's uh, he was you know his 20s when I can remember him taking this bar exam again. And then he passed it, and he was all excited, and he, he got a job as an attorney. That was like a big deal, you know. And my mom's working at Kmart, which is a uh, the equivalent of Walmart sure. kind of back then. Absolutely. And uh, and so that's that's the kind of upbringing we, we you know, we're, we didn't have a lot of uh, extended family. My mom has one brother. My dad was an only child. Um, their parents had moved up from Kentucky to work at, at Ford and at at the plants, you know, that's where everybody came from down south in Appalachia. They came up into the Detroit area to get a lot of jobs um, that were open in the auto industry. So uh, I saw a lot of that hard work for, and and again, grandparents growing up in that depression era. So they were very cost conscious, saving every dime, not very, you know, spend, they were very very thrifty as it relates to their their spending habits. So I learned a lot about finance just by inherently, Understanding that you know there's a difference between you know uh, earning a dollar and spending a dollar, and it's a lot easier to spend it than it is to earn it. And you get you got to roll up your sleeves and and uh, make sure you're doing a good job of saving. So I always kind of had that in my background. My parents were very uh, religious churchgoers. We would go to church on Sundays, and maybe every once in a while we'd go twice on a Sunday. You know, it was that kind of that kind of community. You know, it was pretty tight knit, uh, hardworking. I don't remember being as fanatical about sports as this environment that we are today. <laughs> I remember sports was just a thing you did to kind of get some blow some steam off. Uh, I remember you know you compete your face off and you try to win, but then when the game's over, the clock hits zero, you go back home, get your schoolwork done, you know you clean the house. <laughs> it's just on to the next day. Kind of like I learned later in life at Ohio State, it's always, you know, you worry about the next play, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how it was when I grew up. You just worry about the next day. I mean, do your best today. That's all you got is today. Today's the, the day you want to do your best, and then, uh, you know, you can't get it back, so you want to put it in the win column. And uh, so that's kind of the, the way I was brought up. I think a lot of the people in our community, that's the way we were. And uh, as I got older, I started to really fall in love with, with sports more so than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I just thought it was a fun way to – to try to win and try to compete, no different than in the classroom. And I wanted to get an A because I wanted to beat my neighbor next to me that was really good in math or whatever. Um, but as I got older and people started to take interest of what I was doing on the football field or on the basketball court or whatever, you know, it started to dawn on me that I can probably go to college and play sports. And, uh, you know, my mom never went to college. My dad was like the first guy to go to college in our family. So, I thought that was going to be a pretty cool thing. I had an older brother who was also very gifted athletically. He ended up being a quarterback at Eastern Michigan. Mm. And so I watched his kind of recruiting um, as we got older. But again, it's so different than it is today. Uh, You know, you you literally would fill out forms, paper forms that you would send in to coaches um, as recommendations from your head coach in your high school. But it wasn't as sophisticated as today. Um, But I do know this. I know that the background in sports was really the backbone for some of the things like teamwork, time management, commitment, goal setting, all of those things that sports give you as a human uh, are what attracted me to sports. And I think it's what I've gotten most out of sports. And uh, that's why I try to teach young kids that, you know, I know the flash of watching these NBA games or these NFL games or even the college games now, the flash of the guys wearing the bling and all that stuff is cool, 
And the money is great, but the value you receive in playing athletics goes so much more beyond the dollars and cents of the situation. And and uh, if kids can wrap their brain around that, it actually makes them better players. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that that's kind of my my background from a from from growing up in Allen Park. But it was it was great. And once I came down to Columbus, I I kind of never never looked back. I didn't have much time to go back home once I came right. to Columbus. Well, who who recruited you? John Cooper was the head coach. Uh, yeah. who, who took a shine on you coming up north? It, we didn't get as many players from up yeah. there. Craig Krenzel eventually came down, but but there were back a couple. Then, there were yeah. a couple. Uh, Dwayne Carter was a kid okay. uh, from from Detroit area. Uh, there's Randall Brown, who you you wouldn't remember the name maybe, but he was a defensive lineman. Uh, those two guys were older, so they always uh, you know would introduce you to some Detroit kids mm-hmm. when you came to town. But but the uh, Coach Cooper was the head coach at Ohio State. Uh, Bill Young was the defensive coordinator, right. and he was a heck of a you know, he was one heck of a recruiter and a, and a really good guy, um, really good coach. And then Bill Young was also on that staff. If you remember Bill Young, really good recruiter. So these guys would do things different than the other colleges that were recruiting me at the time. Uh, they would come to my track meets. They would f- pop into a basketball game. Uh, they would they would write me these different notes. They would call me on the way. Ohio State, my senior year, Ohio State played up in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. It was the year that Desmond Howard scored on a punt return and did the Heisman pose. Right. Michigan's recruiting me. I'm on the sideline for Michigan that day. And when I woke up in Allen Park, Ann Arbor is only about four, half an hour from my, my house. So I wake up in my house and I get a phone call, old school phone on the wall call, by the way. Sure. And it's Bill Young from the hotel mm. getting ready to play. Michigan, Ohio State's getting ready to play Michigan. So here's the defensive coordinator for Ohio State on the phone. This is the morning of the Ohio State-Michigan game. I'm supposed to go there to be on the sidelines to as a recruit for Michigan. And Bill Young preemptively calls and says, Hey, man, I saw you – oh, because the Detroit News came out with their all-dream team or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I was in the, on the, in the paper, on the, on the front page of the paper as a dream team kid. And he says, Hey, man – I just want to call you say congrats. I know you're going to be up there as a Michigan recruit uh, this afternoon. But if you get a chance, make your way over, man. I just wanted to say congratulations on what a great honor it is to be on the dream team for Detroit and this and that. I mean, just a great guy, right? And he's like, and I know you're probably going to be over there with all those guys and those maize and blue, but but if you don't make it over, just look over because I, I just want to wave at you. You know, he was just <laughs> he's just a nice, just one of those kind of guys. Yeah. So and of course, you know, I'm on the sideline and I would, I would look over like and he would wave and, <laughs> and I was like, this is crazy. But uh but yeah, so the the way those guys recruited was completely different. And I think it's more along the lines the way they do it today. I think so. They're more intense about it. They're more uh I remember when he would come to to the house and they wouldn't just come once they'd come multiple times you know and and uh, other schools would maybe just come once but these guys would come multiple times they would they would know your backstory know your family's backstory they'd have you know cousins names that they would have some kind of connection to I mean they really did their homework back before the internet mm-hmm. so I was everyone everyone was always really impressed with the way Ohio State recruited and at the time if you remember in those early 90s that's when they started to to land a lot of big-time named recruits. Yep. And as a young recruit, it's still this way today. If you know you're going to play with some really good players, it makes it easier to say yes to a school mm-hmm. because now you know we're going to have a good team and you want to go compete and you want to try to win a championship. Uh, at the time when I was in school, you want to win the Rose Bowl. You know, you want to win the Big Ten. You want to beat Michigan. And so those were the things that uh, – that were paramount to the recruiting process. But, uh, but yeah, the, the staff at Ohio State was, was absolutely laser-focused on recruiting, and, um, and that was a big change from the Earl Bruce era. It was, and, and I think you're right, because I, I was in there a little bit later, but I remember like Bill Conley was a, the recruiting coordinator there in the late 90s for Cooper, and, and I, I agree with you. I mean, you think about supposedly Ryan Day went down to see Caleb Downs, right? This there, But that was happening back then, you know, on a more um, – a more uh, just a different level like you it used to be I guess more letters might have been written or things like that but you picture these coaches coming to your house that that means a lot to to a kid I would think at that time oh for sure and one of my favorite stories my my uh, mom always brings this up but uh one of the first times Bill Young came to my house uh he he came borderline unexpected Mm -hmm. and he pops in and we weren't really expecting a college coach and 
let alone a college coach from Ohio State. So this was kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And he comes in, he sits down, and, and my mom doesn't know, you know, what, we don't have anything for him to eat. She's trying to scramble in the kitchen. And she says, can I get you a cup of coffee? I'm, I'm going to brew a pot of coffee right now. And he says, oh, yeah, sure. So she brews a pot of coffee, and sure enough, he's kind of, you know, making small talk with me and my dad and my sister and my brothers. And uh, here comes my mom with this cup of coffee, and she sits it down, and I'll never forget it. He goes to pick it up, and he spills it all <laughs> over, all over the little coffee table there. And it's all over me, and, and it's a mess, and he's just playing it off like it's, you know, and he's, he's cleaning it up. And we didn't think it was that big of a deal, like I said, before we came from a, a, a background of, hey, you make mistakes, it is what it is. It's no big deal. We've spilled coffee before. And uh, and, and through, through from that moment forward, I remember when I when I committed, he said, man, I knew spilling that coffee was good luck. So that was always kind of our thing, you know. So whenever yeah. I see someone spill coffee, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes uh, you can make the most out of it. So you did commit and come to Ohio State. Did you did you redshirt in ninety two or were you, were yeah you, okay. yeah? So I committed again and uh, redshirted in nineteen ninety two. I was so in high school I was a tailback and a linebacker, mm-hmm. and I was uh, about one hundred and eighty seven pounds my senior year. So wow. that's tiny, relatively speaking. Sure. You know, even back in the nineties, that's not very big. And when I came to Ohio State, I think it was because I played all these different sports. I didn't really have a chance to gain as much weight. But here I am, 6'3", 190 pounds, soaking wet. And Coach, they told me from the beginning, hey, we're going to redshirt you, we're going to put on some weight. And Coach Kennedy was the strength and conditioning yep. coach at the time. You remember Dave Kennedy. I do, I do. And, uh, man, he was good. He was a good strength and conditioning coach. But he was funny. He was like, Ryan, man, we got to put weight on you. you got, like, no body fat. You've got plenty of big – your frame's big enough to put weight on. So here's what, here's what the plan of attack is. And this is hilarious, right? Because this was back in the 90s. You would never do this today, but this is how you put weight on back then. Every meal, this is Dave Kennedy telling me, Ryan, every meal, and, and you have basically as much food as you can eat at the dorms and at the, at the training table. Right. Okay, that's the way it works when you're a student athlete. And they have all these different types of uh, meals and all these different types of drinks. Okay, so you can make choices, or good choices or bad choices. Back then, they didn't just give you everything healthy. I mean, you could have had soda pop, you could you know, mm-hmm. cookies. It didn't matter. But for him, he said, look at it. Here's what I want you to do. When you wake up before class, go down to the, to the training table, and I want you to drink three big old glasses of whole milk. Yeah. And then I want you to eat two uh, bowls of cereal with whole milk. And then at lunch... Eat whatever you want, but make sure you always drink three glasses of whole milk. Oh, my goodness. And then at dinner, same thing. Just make sure you're drinking three glasses of whole milk. So I literally, for that whole first fall semester, or fall quarter back Back then, then, I drank more whole milk than you could possibly imagine. I mean, I kept bored in business. And so I'm throwing down milk like you wouldn't believe. That winter, we get through winter conditioning, and they take your body fat, and they weigh you. I weighed 228. Oh, my goodness. So do the math on that. You go from 190 to 228, and literally, I was strong as, as you can be because I'm working out with Dave Kennedy and these guys. Yeah. It's not like I'm sitting around the dorm. I'm So I'm I'm now a bigger, thicker guy that can still run, and I'm thinking, holy cow, I got a chance now to play football at Ohio State. You know, when you're 190 pounds, playing linebacker is not a good idea. No. You got to have some – Lead in your pants. You, you sound know? a little like Ryan Radzinski did going into uh, it, as a preferred walk it, on this it, past it was, fall. That's why I always say, you know, Ryan is a good, you know, Jerry's a good buddy of mine. Yeah. We played together. So I know Ryan, I've known him since he was born. And I've thought about him uh, as, as, as in terms of I see what he can be if he absolutely digs in and he just focuses on football in the weight room and focuses on putting that weight on the right way, which nowadays – I don't think he's got to drink whole milk. Every no, day. no, no. There's lunch and dinner. There's protein and, and different things he can yeah. do. But I think he's going to, you know, easily. I've seen him recently too. By the way, he looks. He's he already gained he some weight. You know, he's looking really good. You can imagine a couple more months, and he's going to easily be able to contribute on the field for the Buckeyes. And um, but yeah, that that was what happened when I first got to Ohio State. But I got redshirted. And I remember, you know, Steve Tovar was a linebacker that was a senior that particular year. Craig Powell was the starting Will right. linebacker. Mark Williams, great guy. He was a strong side linebacker. And uh, we had a couple of other guys, that um, one from Texas, one from uh, the Maslin area. And these guys ended up you know, not working out. Uh, the next year, Greg Belisari came to school. Mm-hmm. 
and, and Lorenzo Styles was with me as a as a freshman, and he was unbelievable. Uh, stepped in and played, but uh, you know, it's it's fun to think about guys that came in where they start is never where they finish, right? And uh, to see the the maturation and to see these guys get you know bigger and stronger and faster. Again, a testament to the recruiting and a testament to what Dave Kennedy was able to do in that in that weight room, right? And, and I mean that '93 season. So you're 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 not you're, you're a redshirt freshman in '93. That was the first year that a Coach Cooper coach team really sniffed that you know top spot. They you know they certainly ended not as fun against Michigan, but but I remember that season. I was a freshman in high school that year, and just uh, just the way that things went that year. I remember I remember staying up watching it. Michigan State played Wisconsin in uh, in Tokyo. Yeah, and it, I, I believe if if I forget which was which, but if one of them would have won. Ohio State would have gone, you know. Yeah, if Michigan State would have won, we would have went to the Rose right, Bowl. Right, right. Because so. we had tied Wisconsin that year. Mm-hmm. It was Arlen a 13-13 tie in Madison, and Marlon Kerner blocks that field goal at the end of the game to tie the game 13-13. And, uh, so we shared the Big Ten championship that year. So we were Big Ten champs as a freshman, and I remember thinking, you know, the previous year, 92, and I didn't get a chance to play – we had uh, we had tied Michigan in Ohio Stadium. Uh, our record was you know, eight and four or something. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that it, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't up to the standard of Ohio State at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the last of the. There was a little bit of a. I don't know if there was a cohesive unit the way it should be in the locker room because you had some old thought processes from the previous regime, which was Coach Bruce, mm-hmm. and then you got this new age kind of thing going on with Coach Cooper, and 93 was the first year that pretty much it was all, it was Cooper. all Coach Cooper. Yeah. yeah. So 93, you started cooking. Um, you started to have some guys step up as true leaders in that team. Like Alan Klein was an offensive lineman that was really good, but he was a great teammate. Jack Thrush, you, you might remember that name. Great, great teammate. Um, he's actually my brother-in-law now. He married oh, my wow. sister. Okay. And they're they're – their, their son's now getting recruited all over the place. He's going to be a senior at Upper Arlington, but um, uh, Cal Thrush, he's a really good uh, defensive lineman. Anyways, so these kind of guys are character guys. You had a lot of them in that in that locker room. Uh, guys like Raymond Harris, you know, right. older than at that point now. Um, and you just really had some guys that, you know, you mentioned Marlon Kerner. I mean, that guy was a great, great teammate. You know, he was a great football player. He played in the NFL and stuff, but, man, you want to talk about a great teammate. And – I think those guys don't get enough credit. 1993, that that team, really, you know, as being co- Big Ten champs, after all they had gone through, you know, for the previous four or five years, they really kind of set the stage for what we are now envisioning as the, the last 30 years of just dominance of yes. Ohio State football. But you got to look back to what what was the big difference. Well, you had a lot of good leaders, mm-hmm. um, and those guys – trained the younger guys, and then once they, you know, graduated, they left it to, to me and Vrabel and Fickle and, and those kinds of guys. And then the Rosinskis come along, and it's just good guys, right. you know, that are going to be good character guys, good locker room guys. Um, don't get me wrong, those guys are all good football players too. Sure. But you got to have both. In order to be successful at the highest level, you can't just roll out there and be a good athlete. Mm-hmm. You have to also understand that it takes 11 guys to stop the ball, it takes 11 guys to move the ball. And each one of you is just as important as the next. And once you buy into that, good things can happen. Well, you talked about putting on the weight you did as a as a true freshman and all that. Let's fast forward to that Rose Bowl season in '96. And this guy that if you could, especially in the mid '90s, if you could chisel out a middle linebacker, um, he didn't need to, to do too much. I don't think. I'm sure he did a lot in the weight room. But but Andy Katzenmoyer comes from Westerville South, just up the road. And I know things got shifted around a little bit because Greg Belisari, you know, maybe shifted to a little bit of a different position. But you were still there on the other side. You played the three, a four-three. Talk a little bit about Andy coming on, and then let's talk about that magical season you guys had. Yeah. So Andy, when he came to Columbus again, I think most people that don't know Andy have no idea how great of a teammate he really was, how smart of a football player he was. Um, everyone knows how good of an athlete he was because mm-hmm. you just flip on the film and watch the guy, but. But when he came in, he wasn't one of these guys that was, you know, braggadocious about his God-given ability. He literally wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And he got in there, and he fit right in with the team. He, he literally uh, couldn't have been a better teammate 
he probably was a better teammate than he was a player, and he was one of the best players in the history of Ohio State. That's true. Okay, so I can't say I can't say it better than that. Like that's how good of a guy he was, and for him to be as talented as he was to come in as a freshman and truly understand his role as a freshman mm-hmm. and a role as a heck of a ball player, uh, he he did it to perfection, and so. Greg and I would would you know sit in those meetings room, meeting rooms with with Andy and he would be the first one asking questions. I remember riding bus rides to the game, you know, and he just would have other questions about scenarios and just uh, really wise beyond his years as a freshman. Clearly gifted athletically beyond his years as a freshman, but but to see him uh, mature and continue to grow through that particular year and then the years. Uh, following was was really really almost like you're also like a proud dad you know watching a guy grow up and he was just and I I have a good relationship with Andy to this day so it's fun to see him in the community doing great things but um, yeah I was I was really proud of the way he performed but uh, the thing that cracks me up about Andy when he was recruited and then he came into Ohio State you know he came in bigger than anybody else we had in that <laughs> uh, linebacker locker right. room. And faster than anybody else sure. in that linebacker locker, and stronger than anybody else. And he's a freshman, you know, and uh, he was he was way ahead of his time. He, you could have taken him out of that era and plopped him in today, and he'd be just fine. The only That's thing how I've good wondered, the only thing I've wondered about that is, I think in today's environment, he might just be a defensive end, or maybe they probably would make maybe him a hybrid. three four outside yeah, linebacker like, yeah. because of his size and his speed. Now, you know, a lot of those linebackers have to chase down, but he could have chased down anybody. I mean, he could have chased down anybody, but you know what? He would have been one of those kind of guys that would. You know, if you had today's day and age, you know, where you've got, you know, sometimes you're on a three-down lineman, things of that nature, he's so gifted, he could play nearly any one of those front seven mm-hmm. positions. Yes. That's how good he was. Right. And strong and fast, and, and he had, you know, his weight, he was probably 250. I mean, he was a big old kid. I remember, yeah, the 6'4", 245 was probably his, his play, play, program yeah. weight. And just so just unreal. a big old guy, I mean, and, and strong as an ox, so I, he could have definitely played three technique. Absolutely, no absolutely. Now, that, that defense had basically everybody back, but you throw in Andy. Uh, great year. I mentioned you you won the Rose Bowl. You were co-defensive player of the year on that team. That's a an incredible award given to someone when you're talking about Luke Fickle started every game as a, a high state player. Rabel goes to the NFL, has a great career. You've got Andy, all these guys. Well, I, I know this. Every single player on that defense, that was back when Coach Pugich, the year started out with Coach Pugich calling a defensive team meeting. Mm-hmm. And he looked at Sean Springs and Ty Howard. And those were, by the way, our corners. Right. And these guys, for those of you who aren't familiar with those names, they were the textbook definition of lockdown corners. So Coach Puggage says, hey, uh, Ty, Sean, stand up. And he, and he says, boys, we're going we're gonna to lock down players all year long. We're going to pin our ears back, and we're going to run downhill like a bunch of silver bullets. That's right. And that became the mantra. Uh-huh. We're going to be silver bullets. So the silver helmet firing around on all cylinders is like a bullet, right? And so he came up with this mantra, and we, every week, he had silver dollars that he would put in this big, like, bucket for, like, some great hit or some great play, you know? And people would get jacked, you know, when you got a silver dollar because you got to go up and put it in there. Okay. And it was really, really, like, really cool. And what we did was at the end of the year, he took all that money that he had put in there and he bought everyone's silver bullet, like, necklaces. Okay. Like a little necklace. Yeah. I still have it to this day. And uh, my kids get a kick out of it, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that silver bullet mantra was the thing. And at the end of the year, when they um, were handing out the awards for Defensive Player of the Year and that, that sort of thing, they gave it to all eleven silver bullets. Okay. okay. So, 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 co-defensive player of the year for for me is is really an honor. But again, like I said earlier, I'm one of eleven. Yeah. And all eleven got that honor. But and you had was, you had NFL place. players. I mean, Rob Kelly and and uh, Damon Moore and. You go around. Uh, you mentioned, but Antoine Winfield was the nickel guy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Antoine Winfield played nickel. He might be my all-time favorite defensive Buckeye. I mean, that guy was amazing. Yeah. He, you think about that. We played an entire season with the majority of snaps. Antoine Winfield on the sideline waiting to get in. That's right. Yeah, think about that. That's crazy. It is. That's how good of a defense that was. Well, let's go ahead and transition. I've got a lot more of your story to tell, and I could talk Ohio State football with you all day. 
Um, you went into radio and television with WBNS, and and I remember uh, I just share the story, a personal story. 1999, they go to the Final Four. The men's basketball team does. Uh, I sat in the Sweet 16 behind the scorers table, and that's where, as a student radio uh, reporter at that time, I had done the whole season play by play, and then I was a reporter for the tournament. I was kind of by myself. And then in the in the media workroom, the dining room before the Elite Eight game, you and Jay Burson say, "Come over and sit with us." So we sit together and watch them go win to go to the Final Four. And then you were helping out with Channel Ten, but you were also uh, at the Fan doing a morning show at the time. We'll got we'll get to that. But but you say, "Hey Seth, could you run the tapes out to the truck, and I'll hold your recorder for you." So you held the microphone for the student radio station. And did all the interviews. Meanwhile, I could be seen on video. My grandma called me and she said, I saw you on TV. I'm I'm lurking around the cameramen because there were two or three of them and they would give me a tape and I'd run it outside and Jeff Hogan was perched out there and and Moose would put it all together and and so that was one of the first times I worked with you and, and it was around you. That was just a great memory. Yeah, those were great times. And and that season that was uh what a great memory for for all of us uh, mm-hmm. for for that basketball season. But I remember those days, and I remember you as a young guy running around and you know you know competing to try to do your best, just right, like right. we talk about, right? Right. And, and uh, but you know when when you're in those those uh, those media areas and those media rooms, it's not totally unlike competing in the you know classroom or on sure. the field. I mean you you got a job to do, you got to do it no matter what. Um, everyone's got a role. Uh, everyone has to work together. It, it's really, I think that the, you know, the years I spent in media, uh, I, I can't think of a better, uh, you know, training opportunity for um, life after the media than, than what I had there because of a number of things. I, I feel like, you know, what I got from Ohio State football uh, was amazing in terms right. of time management and teamwork and you know, goal setting and, and all sorts of things, leadership. But when it came to the television, I thought that the, the and, and the radio, uh, the best thing I got out of that was deadlines are deadlines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there's nothing that goes on the air, um, you know, if you don't have it ready to go, and you can't just say, "Oh, I'm going to wait for a couple more minutes." <laughs> you, you don't have another no. second. Right, I mean, right. The, the, it's live now. So live television, I thought was was really awesome. And I know now in the real world, you know, people are. You know, shoot, I was calling you earlier about what time you're going to start because of the fact that, sure. you know, I, I'm always on this clock, like 10 o'clock means 10 o'clock or, you know, not 10.01. And mm-hmm. so uh, TV trains you that you, in radio, they train you that you have to be on time. So, you, you know, you, you learn that in athletics and you definitely learn that in TV. But that's that's great about that memory. I can remember so many of those little things, um, so many of those little moments that are, uh, again, I felt like those moments were, just as enjoyable as the production that you put on the actual right. air, you oh, know, yeah. all that fun stuff that we had in the, in those, in those little moments, that's kind of like the locker room. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. You're the backstage, you be and Jay Burson, Jay Burson would be hilarious yeah. talking about <laughs> his stuff. <laughs> and then Moose and those guys. Yeah. I mean, that, what a great, great time. I mean, I always tell people, people ask me, why'd you get out of TV? Did you not like it? This and that. No, I loved it. I actually, I absolutely loved it. I just had other things I wanted to accomplish, mm-hmm. and it took a lot more of my time than I would would really kind of like to have taken. And so that's probably the biggest reason I left television and radio is because I I knew eventually I'd have children, I knew eventually I'd be married, and I really wanted to be able to spend time with them. And I felt like uh, you know it was it was more and more difficult as I got married and I started to have kids more and more and more difficult to justify missing my son's mm-hmm. game because I got to go cover somebody else's son's game. That's yeah, that's tough. You know, and that makes it a little tricky for me. Now, that doesn't mean it's it's, know, it's not wrong. wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's just for me personally. Sure. So, uh I loved every second of it. If I didn't have kids or a wife, I'd probably be in TV right now because yeah. it, it is it is really fun. Well, you talked about the the memories uh I as interned at the fan and every Thursday they would send me to the Woody Hayes facility to get Coach Cooper's comments. You know, they'd always did Thursday nights two game, two days before game day because they'd often leave on Friday if they had a road game. Uh, that was your last chance to get Coach before the game. And I remember it would be Bruce Hooley and Tim May and 
somebody from channel 10, four, six, whatever. And I remember one time Tim May brought his two sons and, and the four of us played football in the, in the indoor part because practice was outside. I remember that being a great time. And, and you speak about the, the competition, yet there's camaraderie. I interned at the fan for over a year and the spring game, my senior year was at crew stadium because of the renovations to Ohio stadium. And, and they did a big channel 10 slash ONN thing where Kirk Curb Street was still around and he came and did it. You probably did it too. And I'm leaving the field to go upstairs to, to broadcast the spring game. And Kirk is standing there kind of by himself in the corner. And he says, Seth, you know, what, what are your plans? You're graduating. And I said, well, I talked to the program director at the fan. He, he, he won't put me on the air. He won't give me a job. And I was kind of sheepish. I said, I had to take a job at 610 WTVN. And um, he goes, don't worry about that. He said, we're all, you know, we're all trying to get there. He's like, we're not all of a sudden enemies because you go yeah. work for the competition, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and he's like, you've got to look out for yourself. That's fine. And that, that taught me a lesson in and of itself because, yes, you want to be right. You want to get the, the story out there and be the guy that got it done. But at the same time, a lot of those guys, you know, they – yeah, they're together a lot. So you're always together. You you're going through the same thing. You're missing the various you know uh, moments in life, whether it's weddings or funerals. You know you you're missing some of those things because you're in West Lafayette covering right. the game. You know, and I can remember vividly. You know, the first couple of years I was married, my wife's family had this joke like, "Are you really married right, to somebody?" Exactly. Because you know they'd go to a wedding, and I'd say, "Well." You can't get married in the fall no. on a Saturday. I mean, I can't go there. I got to, you know, I'm, I'm literally going to be in Madison, Wisconsin, uh -huh. you know, covering the Buckeyes, or I'm going to be in Happy Valley or wherever it was. And then, of course, with the Blue Jackets and the crew and everybody else, you know, you don't really have, um, you know, the kind of weekends that, you know, is a stereotypical. But don't get me wrong. I, I loved every second Absolutely. of TV. Before we transition completely away from the TV and radio part of your life, uh, I read a dispatch article where you kind of joked about, having to go cover a women's game, and then you end up meeting your future wife. Uh, her maiden name was Lauren Shank. Uh, I want to share a little faux pas that I had surrounding Yeah, let me Lauren. hear about this. You had a faux pas with Lauren. This is um, great. Do tell. <laughs> so I was in, I believe, I was in my third year and when she was a freshman, and we were getting the student radio sports staff kind of beefed up. You know, the, my sophomore year, it was myself and another guy, and we kind of got what we could to, to fill in some holes, but we just didn't have a big staff. And so the next year we kind of said, you know, if we could get some people trained doing games, like like a women's basketball game or a softball game or whatever, you know, that way, even though we're still doing football, men's basketball, baseball, um, people will be ready, you know, to take our spot or, or to help out. So, so I went to the first women's basketball game of Lauren's freshman year and um, – we covered the game and did the game, whatever. And on Mondays, me, my entire college career, especially as a sophomore through senior, we held a talk show on the student radio station every Monday night, hour long. We called it Bucks on Bucks. It was the, the fake name was K-Bucks, K-B-U-X. So we called it Bucks on Bucks. And we did this show. And I get in there and, and I alternated with my fellow sports co-sports director on who hosted. And I remember he was hosting – and he said, Seth, you went and checked out the uh, the women's basketball opener. Can you tell us a little bit about the team? And I didn't mean it this way at all, but they rode me the rest of my college career on it. I was talking about Lauren. I said, yeah, they've got a good-looking freshman. <laughs> and, I, and, and, of and course, you were talking about I mean, she a good played player. well. Yeah, she played well. Player. She knocked, Meanwhile, like, oh, Seth yeah. likes Lauren. And, and the funny go. thing to me was I would see Lauren on campus, and I would always think of that. And I, I think, you know, I knew – I would go get interviews with Beth Burns and different people as well. So, like, I knew the players a little bit, and I remember seeing her on campus and, and, and thinking, well, I called her a good-looking freshman. And then, <laughs> you know, a few years later, I find out you're getting married to her. So <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I remember covering her, too. So I remember going in, and it was uh, just like you were saying for the student, you know, uh, for the student radio, we had the similar kind of thing. So my first assignment as a sports reporter right was to go to the women's basketball. Right, right. Yeah, the guys getting trained. Same kind of thing. And uh, and she was a senior. Steve Snap was the sports director yep, at yep. Oh, at uh, or sports information director at um, Ohio State. And I had always known him from my time at Ohio State. So 
the game ended up going into overtime. It's my first game I covered. Game goes into overtime. I'm supposed to get the get the audio. You know, I'm doing the interview after the game, and I got to get it, and I got to get it back to the station, and I have to get the tape from the from the highlights that I've taken notes about, and I've got to edit those, mm-hmm. and I've got to turn them around, and I've got to get the shot sheet to Dom or you know maybe Jay Crawford or whoever right, it was right, at right. the time, and I remember thinking to myself, the game's going overtime. And I'm starting to stress out because, like I said earlier, you know, once the 11 o'clock you know, news hit, sportscast is going to happen whether or not we're back or not. Right. But they're counting on me and they're paging me. This is before cell phones. <laughs> so I'm getting pages. Like, where are you? Well, the game's in overtime. You know, I can't, I can't get an interview with a player when they're playing in the game. So the game wraps up and I'm thinking, this is terrible. I wish for, I wish this thing, I don't even care who wins. Just end the game. I got to get the highlights back. So I'm stressing out about all this stuff, and Steve snaps right there, and I said, Steve, i got to get an interview with somebody. He's like, Beth's not going to come out for a while. I was like, well, then give me a player. I just need one person. I just need one quick answer, and i got to get out of here. I, I don't, I'm like, I'm really, really late. He's like, okay, let me, let me get in there. He runs into the locker room, opens up the door, and here comes Lauren, right? And uh, so I'm talking, and I'm like, huh. I come back, start editing the, editing the stuff. I'm like, huh. Hey, uh, Moose, can you put me on the uh, women's basketball beat from now on? Because <laughs> I agree with Seth. She is a good-looking freshman. <laughs> she was a senior, senior by then, yeah. yeah. Okay, so moving forward, I actually have another connection with you. You you got your master's degree from the Fisher College of Business in 05. You founded M2 Marketing with Megan McCabe. Megan was in my – I think she was in my Journalism 101 class. I had classes with no her way. all through college. you got to be kidding me. Knew her from covering the team here and there, yeah. and then I'd, yeah. we'd recognize each other in the class, and she wouldn't know me now. This is years later, 20 years later. But, yeah, I knew Megan McCabe. When I saw that you had founded that company and saw her name on it, I was like, wow, I, I know Small her too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. well, Megan's the greatest. You know, Megan was a uh, basketball player at Ohio State exactly. too, as, as exactly. you know. And so that's kind of how you knew her, and then you were in class with her. But you want to talk about an unbelievable human, you know, and, again – her backstory for sports is amazing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, she was recruited all over the country, came to Ohio State, got hurt, um, finished her time at Ohio State, uh, not not playing sports because she got injured. Um, really, really bright, smart individual. Uh, started working at Metro Toledo. Uh, was going back to get her MBA and uh, was just probably going to just go get a raise. And that's when we reconnected in in grad school. Uh, you know, I was working at TV, you know, Ten TV, and, and the radio and everything else. She was working for Mettler Toledo. We got put on a project together because our last names were the same alphabet. You sure. know, her last name's McCabe, mine's Miller. We, uh, you know, were forced to work on these late night projects, and we just clicked. Everything we did, we enjoyed. I enjoyed her work ethic. She enjoyed mine. We fit in as a team. She had her role. I had my role, and we just. I would present. She would code the website stuff, and we would kill it. We would win, win Big Ten case competitions. I said, Megan, we we. We got something special here. Why, why don't we start our own business? She's like, "What are you crazy?" <laughs> Maybe I am a little crazy. I said. <laughs> so we started M two Marketing and never looked back. And uh, you know, it's been great. And it's funny because, you know, both my my business partner and my wife. It's it's funny how this works. Life works out. But both of these ladies, I'm convinced they're more competitive than I am and love sports more than I do. I mean, these guys these guys are just absolutely the best. And so. It's it's so much fun to work with someone like Megan and and to be lifelong partners with someone like Lauren. It's just it, it's just been amazing life that I've had, and I'm so grateful and thankful for those two ladies. I know this. It's a fun year for Megan because her son is Ethan Grunkemeyer, who's uh, the oh, Penn wow. State quarterback. You you may or may not realize this, but you know he's an old tangy kid that uh, kind of a late bloomer. Oh yeah. Uh, I talked to Ryan Day about him a, a bunch, and you know he he just bloomed late. Yeah, ex- yeah You know yeah. and. Um, so obviously we're all pulling for him, but yeah, he he graduated early. He's now a freshman, uh, just just checked in at Penn State, and uh, you know is on scholarship to play quarterback uh, for the Nittany Lions. So really proud of him. Great kid. Uh, excited for Megan and Heather. I mean they they are just the greatest to him and their other boy Brady. But uh, but yeah, so it's kind of a small world. It'll be interesting to see when he comes into the shoe. Oh boy, yes. You know, there's gonna be a lot of people that, that love him <laughs> but but hate that team. So sure. we'll see what happens. And he knows that that's coming uh, down the pike pretty soon. Absolutely. We we went over second and seven quite a bit. It started with a football camp you held in '99. This is old. This is old research I did. You can update me on this. But at one point, about three or four years ago, you had 172 universities and high schools 
going to read to students in 26 different states. Yeah, so we're up nearly uh, nearly 200 high schools and universities now in over 28 states. The way that that happened was organic. So when we started reading, me, Mike, and Luke, in 1999, we went to second graders at seven schools. Uh-huh. That's why we called it second and seven. The way we bought the amount of books we bought was we had a football camp. And that particular year, 1999, only 40 kids came to camp. Okay. The next year, 150 kids came to camp, and we had some sponsors start to sponsor camp. Mm-hmm. You know, we started to learn how to actually generate revenue for this nonprofit that we just started. So we were able to go to 20 schools that second year, and me, Mike, and Luke. A lot of it fell on me because Mike was getting, you know, he <laughs> right. left from the Pittsburgh Steelers at the time to go to the New England Patriots. Luke was working at Simcoe Controls, you know, uh, here in Columbus, and wanted to get into coaching. So he uh, he started doing some you know GA stuff with Coach Cooper and got hired to coach in Akron. So he's leaving, and and I was the one that was back here reading you know to as many schools as I could based upon the amount of books I had. Now, when those guys were in town, they would go with me, mm-hmm. but uh, then they had to leave, and, and because they were pretty much gone during the school year, it would be tricky to kind of set up these readings. Right. And so it was becoming obvious that we needed to have others read to the children because we have all these books. I mean, I had a garage full of books. And so Gene Smith, a few years into it, Gene Smith became the first uh, athletic director that we talked to, Luke and Mike and myself. We went in, had a meeting with with Gene Smith and said, hey, uh, this is something we started. We believe that it was an enormous impact that it had on us as student-athletes at Ohio State. We were wondering if we could somehow – organize your student athletes to do the same thing we did. We'll buy the books. We'll get everything. We'll grease the skids. We'll have the the school ready to go. The dates ready to go. All we got to do is get some student athletes to help us out. And he's like, man, I love this. We're going to make it a departmental initiative. So every year, Amy Hoying and I go and we talk to all the coaches at Ohio State. We give them contact information, get them to sign up uh, for various days throughout the year. And honestly, every Thursday and Friday at 10 a.m., student-athletes from Ohio State are reading to Columbus Public and Southwestern City school kids and giving them hog molly books that we've created. So it's been a labor of love, and through the years it's grown and grown and grown. But what happens is those coaches that have those players, they end up going to other universities. Mm-hmm. And then they call us and say, hey, man, we did that. Remember those hog molly books that we had those kids reading to those other kids? We got a tough community here that I'm now in, you know, wherever it is, Timbuktu. And is there any way that we can get some books down here? And – of course. And then, if, you know, there would be maybe a, someone within the athletic department. They would leave. Good example. Pat Chun went to Florida Atlantic. That's right. Guess what? We, we're with the Owls now. Uh-huh. Then he goes to Washington State. Guess what? Cougars are reading. Yep. You know, Heather Lake, she went to Eastern Michigan. Guess what? The Eagles were reading. Then she went to Pitt. Panthers are reading. And, and it just continued to grow. And then their, you know, individuals that are working with the athletic department – they go to other schools, and they keep bringing them. Davidson reads. If you go to the website, you'll see all of the schools that read. You will be blown away. And it started in 1999 with just three guys That's right. reading to some kids. And next thing you know, student-athletes all over the country are reading to kids. And I believe we're, we're helping two kind of demographics, the children that obviously need to continue to love to read. So we're helping those kids. But we're also teaching those student-athletes they have more to give than just tackles and touchdowns. Mm-hmm. Their life can be more fulfilled rather than just simply tackles and touchdowns because at some point you're not allowed to make tackles and touchdowns in Ohio Stadium anymore. At some point that show comes to a close. But I tell people all the time, I've never seen a reading that's been um, had a negative impact, have a negative day. I always feel like, you know, the people that read at second seven are undefeated. <laughs> you go in there and you have a great time. You have a great day and you leave those kids with a book. So that's kind of how it started and it continues to grow. Um, and here we are 25 years later. It's been amazing. Well, it's www.secondand7, all spelled out, .com. Um, the Hog Molly's books are great. My kids uh, got got a hold of those as, as they were younger. And, and if you just wanted to help out in any way possible, Every year, I assume you're still going to do this, Jersey Mike's does their day of giving, and your second and seven's involved. Everything they raise that day is given to second and seven. Yeah, they've done a great job. And it's not just Jersey Mike's. Through the years, it's been so many organizations, mm-hmm. you know, and it's we've been going through memory lane a little bit this past uh, couple of months uh, as we were preparing for the 25th anniversary. And uh, 
you know, Jersey Mike certainly has been an amazing supporter, but, you know, Giant Eagle has been an amazing sure. supporter. Uh, McDonald's has been an amazing supporter. White Castle. White, White Castle has done more for second and seven than – then people would would even realize, and they don't even need they don't even want the credit. Same with Giant Eagle; they they do all these great things. Buyers in Columbus, yeah, yep. you know George Kaufman, he's an amazing guy. Um, I'm convinced that that he, you know, if you cut him open, second and seven spills out of his bones. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's he's that kind of guy. And Diamond Hill here in town, and there's just so many. You, know, you hate to mention them all because you're going to forget a bunch because 25 years of support has gone a long way. I mean, Crawford Hoying and Bracket Builders, M2 Marketing has been very supportive. Um, you know, I, I, again, I go through the, down this memory lane, and, you know, it's been so such a blessing to see so many people so willing to participate in, in this activity that uh, I say it all the time. There are more people that want to help than those who need help. If we can just connect the dots and give people an answer to the question, how can I help? I think we'll solve a lot of problems. And, and through the years, I think Second and Seven's done that. When people call and they say, hey, how can I help? We've got answers. You can mm-hmm. do a book drive. You can come with us and help us at various events and volunteer. You can help sort books. You can donate your time um, by going into the readings and you know stocking our books with, with our student-athletes. You can donate money. You can go do fundraisers. You know, There's all sorts of things you can do if you want to be engaged and make a difference. And... Um, Again, I've never seen somebody make a make a difference or, or donate their time, energy, or their talent or their treasure, and be so mad that they did it. Right? I've never <laughs> even heard of that. And yeah. it, I, I've heard the opposite. Someone, oh, I wish I would have done that. Well, stop wishing, man. Get out there, do something in your community. It doesn't have to necessarily even be for second and seven. We work with so many organizations that clothe the homeless mm-hmm. or feed the homeless. I mean, there are so many ways that you can be involved and engaged in the community. And once you do, you're going to see that you know. Giving out of the kindness of your heart, you will be paid immensely. You will be paid immensely. And, uh, you know, whether that's monetarily or not, I just know this. You'll sleep well at night knowing that you've done something special for someone in need. Well, thanks so much. That's a great message. Secondand7.com is the website, and uh, you can you can use that to take you uh, to where you'd like to go, as he said, in giving in any way you, you, you see fit. Ryan, thanks so much for your time today. We've gone a little long, but I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Spotlight on Stories, and we are, as I said at the beginning, recording live at Combined Spaces. Combined Spaces is a space and a place. They offer office space in in every conceivable way. They have boardrooms and single uh, desk office spaces. They have cubes, and they have the very podcast studio that we're we're recording from. Go to CombinedSpaces.com for more information. And thanks so much for listening.